Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills by learning from others, drawing lessons from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we're going to sort of include both history and film, and we're going to discuss the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force and French troops from northwestern France to England, late May to early June 1940. Collectively and colloquially, this evacuation is called Dunkirk. Between the 27th of May and the 4th of June, 190,000 British and 140,000 French soldiers escaped to England to continue the war effort. Christopher Nolan's movie of that title opened recently, so we'll be discussing that film and the military history as well as some articles to approach this from a business perspective. Tom, start with, what do you think of the film in light of what you know about Dunkirk? Did any leadership lessons jump out at you? Well, first of all, if I could talk as a movie fan, Richard, uh, I found the movie just excellent. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyable. Um, The... I suppose we should say, uh, give a spoiler alert because we're going to talk about it. Uh, although I think I know most people understand how it ends. So perhaps that's not a spoiler. It's but not a real surprise. Uh, they really have three different timelines going on, uh, a week, a day, and an hour. And it's uh, naval, uh, uh, large naval ships evacuating, small boats, and then uh, the one hour is the RAF. The Probably the thing I learned the most in watching the movie was the RAF combat scenes uh, because I hadn't watched a, a propeller-driven plane combat sequence for quite some time, uh, kind of stuck in the Top Gun era, uh, where it's uh, a little more quick. <laughs> but the uh, Tom Hardy is excellent. I love Tom Hardy. Um, and he's one of uh, three on RAF squadron. Uh, t- two of the uh, the other two are shot down, and he is uh, runs out of gas and lands on the beach at the end of the movie. Um, one of the uh, the uh, squadron leader is lost at sea. Uh, pilot number two is um, ditches and is rescued by one of the Armada boats coming across the channel. But the thing that struck me in the aerial combat was how long it takes to unfold. And so, for instance, when a German plane, either bomber or fighter, would be spotted and the RAF pilot would have to circle around to get behind him to uh, employ his uh, weaponry, just how long that circling took. Yeah. And the um, I've heard World War II fighter pilots talk about it, and indeed many others in combat, how time slows down and doesn't stand still, but it slows down and allows them time to react. And... We didn't have to see his reaction, but we saw. I saw time slow down as he was trying to get behind the uh, the German pilots, and that was probably the greatest revelation for me in terms of what it meant to be a fighter pilot. But also, um, I've heard other fighter pilots say that it's uh, in a dogfight. It's almost all uh, sense, feel, and intuition, and I really got that sense in watching the. Uh, dogfighting sequences where the planes were trying to maneuver either away uh, from or into a position where they could take a shot. And it seemed to be uh, there. there's really no um, book on what to do other than maybe a few guidelines, but it's all really up to you as the pilot. So I was fascinated by that. Hmm. The, um, I guess the other aspect that 
was really one of the focuses of the movie was the small boat armada yes. that came across. And there's another movie that came out recently called Their Finest, which was about the making of a propaganda movie about <laughs> Dunkirk. Yes, <laughs> just watch that as well. Yes. Um, well, what do you think about the uh, the business ramifications of a, of a situation like Dunkirk, where you're trying basically to salvage something from what looks like an unmitigated disaster? So I'd really like to, to maybe step back because uh, we reviewed uh, several different written sources in preparation for this podcast, and one of them was uh, text from Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg by Lloyd Clark, and he had a chapter entitled uh, May 25, June 4, uh, Withdrawal and um, Evacuation, and one of the early um, citations in was a uh, soldier who said simply that um, surrender was not an option. And he quoted a British soldier who said that we had to measure up to our fathers from 1914 to 1918. And I really had not appreciated the First World War and the psyche of the British Tommy or the British soldiers for the Second World War. Uh, So that, um, I think the, the mindset to start with, we're going to figure a way out of this. And really, it was the figuring a way out of it that I thought was uh, one of the, the key insights from the b- business perspective. Once again, there was no textbook on how to do this. It was impro- improvisation on the fly. Uh, but the, the text that we read really uh, communicated to me that the evacuation was really one part of a much larger operation. Obviously, you had the Blitzkrieg operation with the Germans, but uh, in the text, uh, uh, Lloyd's text, he focused on the Battle of Calais, and I think that both struck us as we really were not aware of what the Battle of Calais at this point in time meant, and most importantly, what it actually meant for the Siege of Dunkirk, because it didn't relieve pressure on Dunkirk, but it certainly took resources and time for the Germans to, uh, to take Calais, and we both were struck by one of the quotes from the British officer in charge at Calais, who was at one point told to abandon Calais, and then uh, uh, Churchill countermanded that order and ordered him to defend it to the last man or at all cost. And the quote was, by the time the quote opened to mouth, Keller had been informed of the change of plans. He was halfway through scuttling and destroying uh, his tanks for the defense so that uh, he really had no heavy equipment or heavy guns to hold off the Germans, but he did. He held them off for three days, and that bought Dunkirk, the men at Dunkirk. Uh, the, uh, some of the British soldiers, of course, paid with their lives, but uh, some many were captured. But they bought time for the evacuation and the fleet that you referenced earlier of civilian ships to uh, to be marshaled and to come across. And I was really not aware of that component of the. Um, the battle in the movie, the opening sequence showed the the French uh, really defending the front lines of Dunkirk, and the t- Lloyd's text talked about the British um, uh, defense around Dunkirk and how they really pr- uh, did a fighting withdrawal where they would re- withdraw sectors at a time, generally at night, so that they could have some sort of um, semblance and organization in their withdrawal. But in the movie, they talked about the French forces holding the line and that obviously the French fighting in their homeland uh, had that sort of uh, commitment to the soil and that they uh, they bought the British time to evacuate not only the British troops, but many French troops as well. Yeah. 
The, uh, the thing that struck me really about Calais was that coming out of the total chaos and muddled information that they were getting, the decision-making got very confused until Churchill basically made up his mind. Right. And at that point, everyone had a, had a goal to go for, and they, and they went for it. And I thought that was, uh, it was just one man's resolution, basically, that I think uh, that changed that. The discipline of, that both armies showed in, in doing those leapfrog withdrawals under heavy pressure and at night, I thought was amazing. And I guess that also brings up one of the next things we wanted to discuss, which was the, uh, the German pause. It wasn't really discussed much in the movie, but for whatever reason, the Germans stopped their panzers, and there are a number of theories about that. Do you want to talk some about that? Sure. Um, in the, particularly in the text, that uh, came through clearly as one of the reasons which led to the defense of Calais and the eventual evacuation. And the pause, um, having grown up when we did in the 60s and 70s, I think uh, at least the working theory at that time was Hitler was trying to... Um, not annihilate the British Army because he wanted to show some sort of good faith so he could negotiate a settlement with uh, the British. And if he had killed all of the, or annihilated their army, he felt like he would not be able to get uh, Churchill to the table. He completely, obviously, misread Churchill and his resolve, although there, we should note there were in the, those in the British government who did uh, probably advocate a uh, settlement at that point. Uh, other... Um, more interesting theories have come about since that time. Uh, one of which uh, you struck, uh, you really struck me when you used the phrase, I think, uh, Panzer chocolates. Oh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> which, and it's been now documented in, 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 in the text of uh, uh, amphetamine drug use yeah. by German troops and indeed all the way up the German hierarchy, but amphetamine use, which allowed them to uh, literally operate for two and three days. Uh, at full throttle, of course, uh, as you might expect, when you crash and burn after three days of being up on amphetamines, it's a pretty serious crash and burn, and everything comes to a stop. So perhaps uh, the drugs ran out. Well, the uh, as we discussed, the, the instructions to the Panzer captains were at the start of the offensive that you had to stay awake for at least three days. Um, at the same time, the French were being issued a bottle of red wine, a soldier a day. And I think... <laughs> How French? <laughs> one of our other podcasts, we talk about the OODA feedback loop and how in battle, one of the ideas is to get inside your opponent's OODA loop. And uh, this is an excellent case where people on amphetamines just are moving quicker than the people on red wine. <laughs> Well, I'm, uh, let me see if I can t maybe t bring it down into the middle of, of something that uh, at least seems to be more plausible, and it's really the following. One is that any army, every army, can only operate at top, not even efficiency, but top speed for a limited period of time. And whether that's 48 hours, whether it's 72 hours, you can't have men march, you can't drive men in tanks. At some point, they're, they've simply got to stop. And the same is true with machines. You have to refuel, you have to refit. Uh, and the Germans had advanced literally hundreds of miles in a very short time. And so they may have felt like they needed a time to regroup before they made a final push. Well, they had, in fact, lost... About, about half their tanks and half their planes Right at this point. The other thing is that when you consider the German advance and the 
allied, including the Danish, or excuse me, the Dutch, British, and French retreats, they're moving into a more interior line. And as you move into a more interior line, it becomes more easily defensible because you are defending less territory. So by the fact that the Germans were advancing and decreasing the perimeter uh, around Dunkirk, it was actually making the defense a, a little bit easier. So there's perhaps there's a variety of reasons the uh, Hitler stopping to allow the uh, British to uh, honorably surrender or at least honorably come to terms uh, at some point down the road. I think uh, less people think that uh, that was an invention of the German uh, propaganda machine after uh, the view, eternally viewed German disaster of not destroying the British Army. But for whatever the reason, there was a lull and it allowed the, the uh, British to essentially regroup and uh, have one of the greatest evacuations ever. Yeah, I guess the other thing about withdrawing to the interior lines is they were entering a phase where it was house-to-house urban warfare um, in the towns of Calais and Dunkirk, and they had outrun their infantry. Um, And those sorts of battles tanked you very poorly without infantry support, so there were sound military reasons for doing it. Um, One of the other theories that was popular when we were growing up was that uh, Hermann Goering had talked Hitler into allowing the Luftwaffe to destroy the armies which apparently is really not uh, held currently by much of anybody. Well, it, it, uh, that certainly theory uh, has been floated, but I think uh, what's interesting, that uh, say that theory is correct, I think even today we have seen that um, air power theory recognizes that uh, air power alone can't do that. And you have to have troops on the ground. Uh, there are some, some limited successes. I think most notably the first Gulf War, uh, but they may have been more unique to that situation. But uh, yes, the uh, the German Air Force really did not certainly destroy the uh, the British uh, troops or the French troops. The um, maybe we could turn now to sort of the British side and what we really saw as the leadership skills. And I I would even argue, or at least urge with you, that it was a business process skills because it was organizational agility and it was ability to take in information and come up with a solution based upon the information on the ground, or in this case, the water. Uh, And I think the best example of that was the the home fleet that went across, the uh, civilian fleet. It was well shown in the movie with Mark Rylander going across. Uh, The question I wanted to pose to you, which I'm not sure was answered in the movie, was uh, why was Mark Rylander so intent about, uh, as a British citizen, British civilian, crossing over? We we found out later at the end of the movie, once again, spoiler alert, his oldest son died in the early weeks of the war as a RAF pilot. So maybe he felt like uh, he was... uh, honoring his son. He appeared to be of an age that he could have served in World War One. at least his character. Um, I, I, there was no reference to World War One that I recall, although he did recognize the signs of combat fatigue, or I think they would have called it shell shock. Yeah, or post-traumatic uh, stress nowadays. Yes, uh, in a uh, British uh, soldier who came aboard his small boat, so uh, perhaps he was a combat veteran as well, but I was very intrigued by uh, that and wanted to maybe pose that question to you. Yeah, the um, one of the things that the the movie shows is that a lot of these boats are actually commandeered and operated by naval personnel. Yes, um, 
the the propaganda value of the individual citizens who stepped up and volunteered was immeasurable but in actual fact a lot of this was carried out by the Royal Navy um, which again shows organizational skills to have had this in place um, they had lists of boats they had sailors who were ready to man them um, it's really quite impressive um, the other thing that was not covered at all in the movie was uh, politics at the strategic level with Churchill and his cabinet. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it showed you the importance of domestic politics and making these international military decisions. And in a corporate setting, I guess that would be internal politics. So. <laughs> Well, uh, a couple of observations. One is on the civilians and the use of the small boats. It shows that really ordinary people have the capacity to do extraordinary things. And um, the much of the use of civilian boats was actually not to cross the channel and, cross the ch and recross back with troops, but to ferry troops from the beach to the warships who were out in uh, uh, deeper waters. And so it shows that two things, to, at least to me. One is if you give your employees the opportunity to do extraordinary things in an extraordinary time for an extraordinary project or whatever the situation may be, I think in many times they will rise to that occasion. But also the extraordinariness or what the civilians did within the context of an evacuation, it makes absolute business sense. It was using smaller craft to uh, run men out to sh larger ships in deeper water so that you were utilizing the talent and resources to move to a larger uh, um, platform or solution. So by utilizing the smaller ships to ferry troops out to the warships, uh, you allowed the ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We have, a, of course, the, the myth of Dunkirk uh, to the extent it is a myth, but it also seems to me to be exactly what uh, small boats in the Navy would do is they ferry uh, men, products, and uh, goods out to larger ships that are anchored in deeper water. Yeah. And again, one of the striking things in the movie is the, the discipline of the troops as they stand in ranks on the sand waiting to be ferried off. There's no panicked running for the boats uh, of the sort that you would expect. There's a couple of other uh, points raised in an article on 19 Quotes and Lessons from Dunkirk by Brian Dodd on leadership I'd like to, to throw out, Richard. Okay. One is that smart leaders always create options. And uh, I'd like to unpack though this, however, not in the options of the physical uh, transport of troops or the naval operation, but really to your thoughts about the political situation Churchill found himself in. Uh, this was not a united British cabinet. Neville Chamberlain was still on the cabinet at this point, uh, although it was a unified, uh, I think what they call the war cabinet. There were significant forces within the British aristocracy and even at the cabinet level who had advocated some sort of resolution, uh, settlement, uh, surrender, uh, whatever the document might be called, with Hitler. I don't think they would have agreed to... Uh, bringing the deposed king back as the, uh, <laughs> the next king. But I think that there was an active consideration at certain levels of the British government that the Britain may have to surrender. And so um, Churchill was able to maneuver, outmaneuver these members of the British cabinet. And if, if they didn't come around to his way of thinking, they at least stopped advocating their way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, one of the keys was, of course, Lord Halifax, who was foreign minister at the time. And uh, 
I wouldn't call him a pro-Nazi sympathizer. There were certainly some among the aristocracy, and there certainly were some who wanted to bring back Edward VIII, but I think that was a minority. Um, but yeah, and a lot of it just had to do with Churchill's uh, verbal power. Yes. Uh, he made a speech to the cabinet in which he said that uh, this will only end with each of us choking on his own blood in the streets. And uh, that... That would have been a little strong if you put it to the, the common people that way, but I think the cabinet really understood the stakes here. And then the last sort of business point I would like to raise is uh, that passivity is not a leadership strategy. Now, um, you may want to have an entire podcast on the Fabian strategy based on that, <laughs> but there, uh, that was not passivity as a strategy. That was delay as a strategy. So, uh, or at least as I recall, the Fabian strategy in Rome. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, Churchill was certainly not passive, and he was active. And you do need to remain calm in a crisis, and we're not suggesting that you run around like a chicken with your head cut off, but having actions and taking action can be as important for those under you to see that you're still active in doing something and trying to rectify the situation. Certainly, Churchill was not passive, and once he made up his mind, certainly uh, around the time of Calais, it was fairly clear what the strategy would be, and they moved forward to execute that. And it was a hard decision. Um under conditions of, of scarcity and poor information. But the decision to get back as many troops as possible meant sacrificing some and meant sacrificing virtually all of their heavy equipment. Um, so it, it was certainly not an easy or an obvious solution to the problem. So, um, you know, I really enjoyed the movie. I had the pleasure of seeing it on the 70 millimeter IMAX. It was just fabulous. I would certainly urge anyone who's listening to this podcast who's a fan of history or a fan of leadership, it's uh, one of the summer movies you definitely want to see. I totally agree. Until next time, it's Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.